0: I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. My name is Matthew Kroll.
1: And my hands are registered as Lethal weapons. My name is Shahir Dow,
0: And this is the only podcast about movies specifically. The filmy, filmy film... <laughs> lethal Weapon. D- no. Aww. Once Upon a Time
1: in Hollywood. Man,
0: I really pulled the wrong quote, didn't I? <laughs> 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 yeah, we could just start doing our worst Mel Gibson impressions. Oh, uh, um, do we
1: have to be anti-Semitic? Ooh, uh, ow. I,
0: I believe at this point, yes. Contractually, yes. If that oh. was going to happen.
1: How do I feel about Mel Gibson? You're I
0: mean... nuts! I guess that's Michael Keaton. Anyway, yeah, hi, yeah, Shahir.
1: Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm good. I feel I'm... like we just saw each other.
0: We did. We just saw each other. We haven't stopped seeing each other. And we it's just a delight. keep seeing each other. We're
1: regular Cliff and Rick at this point. I don't know what that means. Uh, it's a reference to the movie where about to review cliff and rick rick dalton and cliff his stuntman
0: oh you mean leonardo DiCaprio and brad pitt yeah i have a hard time when people are that famous getting out of just no like referencing
1: them in my mind hey man you're rick fucking dalton make sure everyone knows why (laughs) and i'm cliff i'm cliff that makes me cliff wait hold on yeah yeah is that
0: how you think the dynamic would be i think it's the other way around
1: really you think you're well, Rick's the star, right? Cliff is the Cliff is the supporting role. Yeah, mm. I don't know. Interesting. We'll get into that in the <laughs> <laughs> in a minute. We got a lot to talk about. This is one of those movies that we just saw today, so we're going to be flying free and fancy fly. What? No, what's that phrase? Flying fancy free? Is sure, that the phrase? I, I don't guess. know. I don't know. It's late. We're sipping whiskey. Um, <laughs> and- it felt appropriate. Felt appropriate in some way. But uh, you can reach us with all your in movie references at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod or leave us a five star iTunes review. You can leave us a list if you want to, but we won't read it. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> uh, a couple of, e- well, we've got uh, an email this week from Gareth. you want me to read this out or you want to take this?
0: You take it, Shaheer.
1: All right. Uh, Gareth, uh, who I believe is from Australia and has emailed us before, we love hearing from you, Gareth. It's been a little bit of a while. I know I've been late, but I've been a bit behind on your releases. Gareth, we're not impressed. You asked if anyone had saw wow. Spider-Man twice. My wife and I did, which is funny because I really wanted to see Endgame twice, and I still have not. Hell yeah, Gareth.
0: These Hell days, yeah. Yeah,
1: we're finding it hard to see every movie we want to see at least once. Also, also, just quiet down here. Yep. For a okay. Here. All right. Okay. I'm gonna have to agree with Shahir about Mysterio uh, <laughs> about Mysterio's motives in the third act of Spider-Man. Uh, Gareth, um, you had me. We <laughs> were
0: we were literally gonna go on a buddy cop adventure.
1: And now, you see e- Spider Man again, you, you literally
0: you just turned into my Mysterio yeah. because I trusted you, Gareth. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you took that trust and you just ran with it.
1: I'm not going to get into this because I don't want to spoil uh, anyone who hasn't seen Spider Man uh, Far From Home, but you can go back and listen to our episode if you have seen it. Uh, and we have an interesting conversation about where the Mysterio's motives are. Validated, I guess, is that. Uh, but he has a question for you, Matt. Yeah. I wanted to ask Matt because you're probably the only one I can make this reference to. Not true. When watching Spider-Man fight an excessive amount, of, excessive amount of drones mid swing, gun blazings, did it remind you a little of Act Three? Of the Spider Man PS4 game when you're literally trying to get
0: anywhere. Oh, yeah, 100%. When the city goes to shit, spoiler alert for the Spider Man PS4. PS4 game, now, which you did play. I, I played all the way through. But, but I, I have
1: 100%. Hold on. hold on. I have 100% on yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah, without
0: the DLC. Yeah. Um, but what the. My, my statement, Gareth. That was a safe guess <laughs> that Shaheer didn't do it. here yeah. has played... Hey, Shaheer, how many video games you played this year? One. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so, you were on the money. It's just Shaheer happened to, to trump be up there. Uh, so... Yes, hundred percent. It does remind me of that. I think that game does a very good job feeling cinematic, but also when the city goes to shit, you cannot swing a damn place without getting shot at, no matter what. And mm. there is often many, many people in Sable Tech. I actually thought that the the, the oh, drones yeah, felt to, to like do. Sable Tech. Yeah, yeah, that whole Sable um, Tech
1: battle. The thing that always drove me nuts in the Spider-Man PS4 game was the catch the pigeons. Uh, I the, love that. You know, like I was just like these fucking pigeons. That's why do my, I need to catch these? That's things? my jam. Uh, also, uh, still going from Gareth here. Uh, um it's a nice email so I just wanted to keep going with this. Also PS, postscript, are you guys planning to do a de- uh, doing any of the recent Disney remakes, Aladdin the Lion King. Um saw Lion King today. I thought it was a great balance of a shot for shot faithful remake and some mixing it up a little bit. Nothing really surprised me except for a couple of changed song lyrics, but I really loved it as a cartoon uh, uh, as a cartoon to realistic adaptation. The wildebeest shot that flies over them into the gorge. Oh. I'm guessing that was sort of an orgasmic sound. And my nostalgia loves it even if it makes me... No, I think uh, he's Uh, going, "Ugh, ugh. I don't know. No, I think he liked it, but he loved it. So why would he orgasm when you? U
0: H H exclamation point is not an orgasm. Sound.
1: Gareth, we're gonna need some clarification yeah. on what sounds you make uh, post-coital. Uh, no, no, that's, that's inappropriate. Really need- that's yeah. inappropriate. You can send us an image, uh, eye diagram, whatever you got. Fucking <laughs> terrible human being. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> continuing on from Gareth, my nostalgia loves it, even if it makes me a mindless consumer in Disney's plans for world domination.
0: Uh I don't want to do the remakes of the Disney films. Really? Nope. Eh, interesting. I did Beauty and the Beast with uh, uh the the wonderful Jessica Tucker who we oh, need yeah. to get back on when yeah. she's on
1: this coast. Um I I so I haven't seen Aladdin, I haven't seen The Lion King. Uh, there's been a couple Is there any other live action Disney Mulan's coming out? Mulan's coming out. Uh, I, know you don't
0: New watch, I know you don't watch the trailers. The yeah. trailer for Mulan is very good. Okay, I haven't seen it. But uh, uh, it was shot in New Zealand
1: as well. So Mulan,
0: uh, here, here's a sad state of my affairs. I've never seen the original Mulan.
1: I don't believe I have so either. So I
0: kind of want to see that one first and then watch the... Because there's very few of those Disney movies that I'll be able to do that with. Well, like, watch, watch the live-action one first. Oh. I yeah. don't know the story other than she pretends to be a soldier and then something happens. Like, that's right, literally right. the thing. I, so
1: Yeah, I don't know how I feel about the... The remake. Of, I I have seen the Lion, the original animated Lion King. Oh and yeah, I've, a trillion times. Uh, and you know, obviously loved it. Um, Aladdin. Um, I don't know. I I I I have seen like images from the the Lion King trailer. I've certainly you know I was curious to see how they were gonna create the 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 lions. Uh, reviews for that film have not been good. Um, They've been mixed um generally not positive in the ones I've read but uh, the yeah, one thing yeah, yeah check it out um, the one thing I will say is I've been really curious by uh, John favreau's uh, cooking show the shift show I will on ne- uh, on Netflix which I've been very very uh um, yeah 53 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, but it, but an 89 audience score mm, so there's that discrepancy again so uh, I the reviews I read were not positive um I I agree with all the negative points that negative
0: reviews make I will say that from, from a from a stylistic or conceptual
1: standpoint yeah. Standpoint. Wait, but you haven't seen the film, though.
0: No, no, no. But, like, for instance, they do say, like, because they're making these characters fairly uh, animal accurate, let's yeah. say, you can't have moments of subtlety and facial structure and awareness and things like that, like you can in a cartoon. And that does hamstring it quite a bit.
1: I did see Jean Favreau's, uh, I call him Jean, uh, Jean, Jean 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 Favreau, Favreau, the chef. Um, I did see his adaptation, The Jungle Book, which I thought was excellent. Same. So, uh, I don't know. But I I saw
0: it on a plane and I don't trust low oxygen environments. When it comes to my emotions,
1: uh, I saw it in a high oxygen environment uh, with air conditioning, and it was good. Okay. Um, so, uh, will, we do, right. will we do? Will we do? There was a book, uh, *The Big Picture*, which I read last year. I can't remember the author's name. Uh, which that's *Movie Bob* show, <laughs> uh, uh, which uh, outlines um, how Disney is trying to uh, to maintain its uh, IP by adapting its uh, animations into live action. Uh, it's called *The Big Picture: The Fight for the Future of Movies*, and it's by the author Ben Fritt. And it's available right now on Amazon. It's a very good book. It also outlines how um, Marvel Studios uh, ended up becoming a billion, multi billion dollar uh, part of the house of Disney.
0: Oh, uh, they made great movies.
1: Um, I mean, that's how they did it. Um, that, I mean, I
0: just saved you some money on a book. You should read the book. It sounds yeah, very, it's interesting, but I will say. I, I mean, you can make as many high pitched noises as you want, it doesn't change anything.
1: That's my Lion King impersonation. Um, <laughs> moving on to uh, the ninth film from one director, Quentin Tarantino.
0: I think when you say that, you have to make the noises of those letters actually smashing onto the, the script.
1: Ninth <laughs> film, by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> they started go. doing that during Kill Bill. I think that I was, know. Yeah, it was a Kill Bill thing. Where this, where the amount of films uh, by Quentin Tarantino became a thing, and I think uh, it's become more prevalent because he is kind of uh, Mr. Tarantino has kind of talked briefly about how he only wants to make ten films. So this is the penultimate. I hope his 10th is Star Trek. Yeah, he's talked about the (laughs) 10th film might be Star Trek, uh, which uh, he has described in some capacity as being Pulp Fiction in the the Star Trek universe. Um, I don't know uh, what that all means, other than to say uh, Quentin Tarantino is an incredibly formative filmmaker for me. Um, We've talked about this on our Hateful Eight episode, which was many years ago. Um, Two years ago. Well... No, more than that. No. Yeah, because it was like in the first year we did this podcast. It was 2015, I think. Jesus, have we been doing this this long? Yeah, we've been doing it for a while. <laughs> Fuck, I need, I'm just good to keep drinking. Um, I I recall uh, when I was a younger man in high school, I got a hold of a VHS copy of *Reservoir Dogs. Uh, it was one of the things that got me excited about writing and and alternative structures in, in storytelling, uh, You know, having not been exposed to that kind of film uh, sure. up until that point. Uh, I snuck into a screening of Pulp Fiction when I was 15. 15 years old, I believe. Uh, and I was like the only kid at my school that had seen the movie. So, <laughs> You're and, bad. and, and I had a, I had a design teacher, uh, our architecture and design teacher who was really into films and he hadn't seen it. And so when, uh, when I had seen it, I got up in front of the class and I was explaining the structure of how Paul Fiction worked. You know, the fact that yeah. Vincent Vega was alive in this scene and then, you know, but he died in the scene before and the stories were kind of mixed up and muddled up. I was very excited. I was drawing diagrams on the board, that kind of thing. Um, which is needless to say you know suffice to say Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino is an incredibly important filmmaker in 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 my life uh growing up with him uh I haven't I didn't enjoy the hateful eight as much as I thought it would was I a, really liked it
0: Did you I, Yeah I did You can go I back and listen to yeah, it go back and
1: listen to it. I don't recall I really you. enjoyed it. Uh, I recall us both being mixed it. I could be wrong about that. You should go back and listen to that episode.
0: Uh, I do also want to revisit it on Netflix because it's extended and broken up into episodics.
1: Yeah, it's broken up into, and it's, apparently it's broken up in very unusual ways, for example, where it's basically in the middle of a scene. An oh, episode will change. And I
0: remember, I remember what I didn't like, and I think it was the sort of violence at the end, but I really did enjoy the structure of the film and what it was trying to do. It's just when you sort of start playing incredible violence sometimes for comedy of like real life. Like, we've talked about this before, but that, yeah. that was the part that, that I did. That come up in
1: this film. What? What? Um, so I uh, obviously was not going to watch any trailer, and I was just going to go rock up to the movie theater. And I did today. Uh, I paid the the premium to go see this movie in 70mm uh, at the Village East Cinema, which is where I went last time to see The Hateful Light and was very disappointed because they played it in one of the smallest theaters. Uh, where But this time I got it in the in the big full feature presentation. Matt, where did you see this film? I saw this
0: film? at the Astoria Kaufman. Uh... Let's talk. Let's let's do a little segment. Uh, I would like to call Garbage People in the Movie Theater.
1: Do you mean the people who collect the garbage for
0: you? No, I mean people that are rude as fuck, and <laughs> I want to just smack in the back of the head consistently. Oof. Shaheer, Wait, I am saw, I one of these people? No, I'm just I'm <laughs> just saying I'm 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 I'm, emp- I'm I'm trying to relate to you on an emotional level. Okay. Get let's get let's get to So, I went to go see this film at 9:30 last night. Okay. Uh so Thursday op- opening, like, night. Yeah, yeah, opening, opening night. Yeah, opening night. Yeah. Um so you'd think that people going to see a Quentin Tarantino movie <laughs> would know kind of what a Quentin Tarantino movie is, and I feel like I was surrounded on the left, the right, and the back by many different people that were just so fucking rude. (laughs) So I went with my buddy Anthony, uh, who? It's funny. He's built like a fucking truck. He's an amazing dude. He's a gentle giant. Andy, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's six seven or something. Like it's insane. And he's just fucking jacked. Mm. Uh, and so I was feeling particularly bold when dealing with these people because <laughs> I'm like, I literally have the fucking Terminator here. Yeah. yeah. Um. So there was a uh, two dudes on my left mm-hmm. that were literally just having full volume conversations Ugh. through the entire thing yeah. to the point where I literally she hear. I didn't say anything to them, but I looked. I, I, I leaned over on onto their armrests, and I, I like basically touched his arm with my arm, and I put my hand, my fist against my chin, and did the whole like Willy Wonka like oh really face. Yeah. I stared at him for about two solid minutes, and he freaked out. He freaked out, and like got up and like didn't say a thing. Like he was scared, and then he just moved one chair over. <laughs> so and then I couldn't hear them as much. But they, wait, but then you missed
1: out on two minutes of movie time. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Was it worth
0: it? I don't know. The people behind us, Mm -hmm. which I couldn't see, so I couldn't like accurately yell at.
1: You're the kind of person who just wants to get up, stop the movie, and say, "All right, people, everyone shut up." Oh yeah, of
0: course, but that never works. So you have to be creative. Uh, The people behind us kept complaining how long the movie was, but verbally, Mm -hmm. they're like, "I can't believe this movie's still going," and I'm like, "A, it's a Quentin Tarantino fucking movie, so you should know this by now." B. If, if you have a time constraint, you piece of shit, look up how long the movie is. Uh, and, and on the, I fucking, I shit you not, on the, uh, in front right of us, uh, were just people that I feel like we're there was a, a row that. of people just texting and lighting up their phones consistently to the point where I threw a haichu at someone's head. What's a high chew? If uh, they're a, a wrapped candy, candy. Oh, okay. Uh, it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they looked really confused, and I just stared back at them, and I was like,
1: "Well, you didn't say, could you please stop texting? No, because no one fucking listens. <laughs> I'm so
0: over people here. Anyway, I had a fucking terrible time while I was trying
1: to enjoy this movie. Okay, well, I feel, I feel your pain. Yeah, I think that would drive me nuts as well, especially for a movie like this, that, you know, you kind of... there's the, You the, want to get
0: lulled into a flow state, I feel like, with this not film. Not just
1: that, but there's a certain level of respect that this film has for the process of going to the movies, you know, to yeah. the point that, you know, he shot it on film, 70mm, and I was like, it, I, need to, I need to pay him the respect that he is paying to Celluloid. For
0: this love letter to cinema mm-hmm. of a specific era, to walk in... <laughs> and be this disrespectful to the movie, it's so funny because you listen to these, you know, I'm not going to call, I mean, I guess he is at this point, an older director, Quentin Tarantino, he's right? He's, he's not 50, older. He's
1: only 50-something years right, old. Right, but
0: like, for instance, like, you know, we've been talking about I've, I've shit-talked Steven Spielberg and a couple other people for being like, only see the movie! Da, da, you know, like, that sort of thing. Christopher Nolan, etc.
1: Dude's only 56 years old. Like I, he's got, great, but what yeah. I'm
0: saying is, I'm saying the old guard that's like, hey, cinema, theaters are important. This yeah. experience is important. Quentin Tarantino's the only one I think that actually, in his weird, like, rambling Way, which maybe I relate to, uh, gets that idea across in a way that I'm like, yeah, like yeah. I see it. To go he, to this man's film, yeah, yeah, and just be not not only be a dick, but mm-hmm. like collectively be dicks in many different <laughs> ways. I'm just like motherfuckers, like go do that shit. While you're watching Forty Eight
1: Meters, the sequel down or whatever, like don't fucking do this here. I have a weird thing with people texting uh, if they're in front of me in the movie because yeah, it's really distracting. It's like a bright light, you know, that's that's like in the middle of the movie. It's I've shined my phone at people. I put it right. over their faces. But I'm like, I'm like, I I always wonder. You know, I wonder if just the vernacular of movies, you know, movie going has just changed, and I'm out of touch. And then I do that sort of Principal Skinner thing, which is like, no, it's the kids who are wrong. It's not um, a matter of the kids who are wrong. It's
0: <laughs> it's a thing where you are all paying for an experience, and it's something where you, what you're paying for is to be able to watch the thing. Right. And it does say at the beginning of the movie, usually they yeah, roll that. there's instructions. Yeah. You know, like, like so people can fucking s- suck a d. <laughs> I can't. I, I'm so fucking
1: angry. All right, all right. So let's get away from the anger of the movie-going experience. But again, uh, I got to see this in seventy millimeter. Uh, I will say this: Look, there is a there's a there's a hot debate uh, that rages on in the uh, annals of 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 uh, some annal raging. Yeah, the annal raging of. Uh, of uh, big budget directing, you know, uh, big budget filmmakers, uh, the likes of which are, you know, uh, Christopher Nolan, Quentin Tarantino, um, who believe that uh, celluloid is the last bastion of what true cinema is. Uh, I think, you know, I, I've, I've heard a quote from Tarantino saying that I'm not here to shoot digital. That's not why I got into this business. You know, I want to hear the wearing of the, the film going in. I want to see the optical... Uh, a fix of, of of actually like printing uh, you know processing light through silver highlight crystals which is what film is and I, I will say this uh, as I guess as a person who came up uh, you know and I've shot films on film and I've shot films on digital now yeah. and digital technology is is so far advanced now
0: I've shot films on films I've only shot TV on digital I've never shot a, a digital film. Okay, I mean, you know what I mean. Like yeah. I, I know that's cement, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, And I I will say this because so I saw the you know I saw a seventy millimeter print uh, which was gorgeous. It was beautiful, shot by Robert Richardson, who is like one of, one of the great cinematographers of our time. Um, I will say I I. I Legitimately, uh, I think it has less to do with the process behind the glass, you know, behind the glass, as much as it has to do with the glass itself and the lighting in front of it, um, and and you know, the optical effects that you can get uh, from 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 digital are, in my mind, just as good. I know there are um, people who who disagree and believe, you know, kind of like vinyl, that there is a a, qual- a sort of ephemeral quality to celluloid that is that is distinct and unique, and, and that is true, but 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 the thing is the actual process by which film makes it to a screen at this point is so influenced by digital technology that that the celluloid ultimately gets cleaned and you know like manufactured to a point where it's not much difference from digital now Tarantino himself has a different relationship to Film and digital because he is uh, he is one of the curators. I believe he's one of the owners of the New Beverly Cinema. Yes, um, which you know only plays films in thirty-five mil. He is a curator. He has. Um you know he has strong relationships with, uh, with collectors. You know he has a he has an immense collection himself. He's probably been in Duart. Uh, he, what's that? Oh, he's in Duart, uh, which is a film production uh, video production company that we have both worked for here in New York. Um, so you know, like apparently his print of Once Upon a Time in uh, in the West is is just gorgeous. Um, Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. The Sergio Leone film?
0: Oh, his. Oh, you talk. I thought you. I thought you were talking about What's About Time in Hollywood. No, I'm sorry. You're talking about his copy of this other. Yeah, his
1: print of it uh, is apparently one of the most gorgeous prints ever. It was playing while I was in Hollywood recently, but I didn't get to go see it. Um, So you know, he has a he has a unique relationship in that in that the films he loves and the, the films that he wants to show you are shot on film, projected on film, and so he wants to ensure that that his work lives in the same space as those, as those films. So and not it's to mention, different.
0: as a bit of a meta-contextualization yeah. for this specific film, he shot on, I think, three or four different types of film, depending on what part they are doing. He yeah. shot on 16. He, I think there was a part that was Super 8 and he shot yeah. 35 and then some 70.
1: Yeah, which is not what you would do if you didn't have have the ni- you know the ninety million dollar budget that he had for this film. of course
0: but I love that like the 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 bounty law scenes that the, the show that uh Jack Dalton is in mm-hmm. in the Leonardo DiCaprio is in in this thing the, why he's famous his Cowboy Western show he shot on sixteen mm Yeah and they shot apparently like the whole intro they shot the whole thing all those parts in like two days but like the, I was listening to the interview with Tarantino. He's like, Yeah we have enough to like do a couple
1: episodes of bounty law. Yeah and apparently he's written like four or five episodes of bounty law. Which is fucking <laughs> Great, yeah, um, and so you know the the uh, for me, I, I just you know I respect the man, I respect the 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 love he has for cinema. There, I don't I don't think there's any other. Human being that probably knows about as much about both obscure and mainstream cinema as this person. Uh, you can go to listen to the Pure Cinema podcast, which is hosted by uh, Elric Kane, a, a guy I went to college with. Step uh,
0: through the portal, go to the place where there's another movie yeah. podcast.
1: Uh, he has an interview with uh, Quentin Tarantino where they talk about the references for this film. Uh, he, he uh, I would never presume that I. Could ever talk to Quentin Tarantino about movies uh, because he just simply exists on another playing field in terms of what he knows. Um, but but by all means, uh, uh, you know enough respect and reverence for the man and his process to to go and see it on on, on seventy mil. Here's, and and happy happy to pay the premium. Sure. Yeah. And here's what I'll say, just sort of finishing that thought about about
0: the the old guard being very film centric. Mm-hmm. Tarantino is the only one that I have never been remotely thinking. Old man yelling at cloud with mm. like he the way he speaks about film and the way he speaks about that not only the technology but the experience is what has resonated with me about being like mm. I can see this point of view. Yeah, when Christopher Nolan does it or Steven Spielberg does it or you know whatever and I and a lot of times which is probably a, a detriment uh, on on the way it's getting to me. It's it's probably a curated bite that's from a publicist or like whatever. And Tarantino will just go out and like ramble at you in a very earnest. And I'm not even saying ramble in a bad way. Like I can tell he cares about this, and I'm I'm very clear on why he cares. Right. And. It's earnest, and it's, and it's um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's effective. It gets me thinking about it in ways that other directors who rally for this experience
1: do not. It's someone who has a respect for their craft, I think, is, is the way it comes through as well. It's like a, it's a real respect for the history of the medium and where the craft comes from and why it matters.
0: And not that I don't think, I, I, I of course believe that Christopher Nolan and Steven Spielberg have a respect for the craft, but the way that they talk about it does not deliver that emotional weight to me. <laughs>
1: Okay. Uh, um
0: so so yay, Quentin Tarantino.
1: Yeah. No, so I was happy to go see so it. Matt, could you read us the IMDB plot synopsis.
0: I would be absolutely delighted. A faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age. In
1: 1969, Los Angeles. Los Angeles, yes. This is the uh, period of which... Now, Tarantino was born in 1963, so he was only six years old around this period. Yeah, but you know he was watching fucking movies. (laughs) He was definitely watching movies around this period. Uh, 1969 is also... uh, uh, August of 1969 is famously uh, the point at which... The Sharon Tate uh, I think it was called The Tate-Bianca uh, Murders on Cielo Drive um, uh, Perpetrated by The Manson Family Happened And as Joan Didion Coined it uh, In her book The White Album Or in her set of essays The White Album the, el- the end of the golden era Of Hollywood Or the end of the The end of the age of innocence uh, Of Hollywood Around that period um, So the film is Ostensibly about a, a An aging actor By the name of Rick Dalton Played by one Leonardo DiCaprio And his uh, Traveling stuntman uh, played by one Bradley Pitt, um, <laughs> Bradley Bradley Pitt, uh, traveling around and and real and coming to the realization that uh, the the way Tarantino describes it uh, is the in uh, in another podcast that I listened to is the pomade boys, you know, the guys who sort of had this sort of masculine energy. They were kind of you know clean cut, well shaved, you know, like strong masculine figures who are realizing that they're place in Hollywood was being usurped by the hippie culture you know like yeah. uh, long haired disheveled you know kind of looks the the <laughs> Um, you know, like obviously the Easy Rider kind of uh, the 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 Peter fonder kind of uh, look the Peter Fonda Dennis Hopper kind of thing, and and um, and then the film kind of intertwines with a telling of Sharon Tate's day. Uh, the film is kind of split up into two different days, each six months apart. Um, and and uh, Rick and Cliff's lives. Uh, Rick happens to own a house that is next door to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate and their lives tend to in- sort of I guess uh, intertwine with Sharon Tate as she travels around her day um Matt I'm I've just seen this film and I have some some very interesting thoughts as i'm piecing together the experience i love head. how you're calling your own thoughts interesting well interesting to me <laughs> i guess maybe uh maybe the word i'm looking for is uh piecemeal thoughts i'm still sure. constructing oh my, yeah i'm still constructing my my opinion of this film
0: well i'll say i mean straight up this movie is a hard nut to crack mm. uh other than Let's my the terrible film going <laughs> experience right uh I have a, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm like maybe less than, oh, at this point, I, I would have 24 hours ago just been sitting down to watch it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I know that I enjoyed my time watching the film. Yeah. I know that, uh, beyond enjoy, like I, I really, I, I, I did, but I will say that this is a specific kind of film that the only way I could classify it after thinking about it today is indulgent cinema.
1: Ooh, very very much so. Uh, yeah, right? Like, it
0: makes total sense. And Zoe, you can hear in the background, my cat agrees with me. Right. Um, In every way, the way it hangs on scenes, the way it kind of uh, <laughs> wanders off like a distracted child or elderly person to another topic for, like, ten minutes and then just comes on back, like... It, it it's a bit all over the place while also being very contained it is it is one of the most dichotomous films i have seen in a long time because every time i'm like oh it was too slow and like whatever i'm like but <laughs> <laughs> it did this because of x y and z and every time i'm like oh well like it's just a compilation of driving scenes with popular songs from the era i'm like but they did make me feel like I was in the space. Like, it, it, there's a lot of back and forth I'm having with what I think of this film. And, you know, overall, first impressions, first thoughts, I definitely enjoyed my time. I think it's it, it was a, again, other than the yuckles that I was dealing with, a movie that should be in a movie theater that mm-hmm. you watch. Of course. Uh, it's Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Um and it's so funny cuz it's just a perspective thing. It's i it's either like uh you know, it's either calming or unfocused depending on your perspective. The soundtrack is either eclectic or oppressive depending on your 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 opinion of those things. Uh I will say the look of the film and getting it uh to look like 1969 Hollywood and the, the visual trickery that they had to do sort of there, I really appreciate. Um, the, the, there are two disparate stories in this movie. One is the sort of fictional, uh, fake Hollywood actors played by Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio or the stuntman. And the other one is the actual sort of story of Sharon Tate, uh, that gets intermingled. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in spoilers. Um, and they do not entangle Mm. Truly until the very end. Mm. And I can see how that could bother certain people. (laughs) Mm. Because to be honest, in the middle of this film, most of the interaction you get from Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate is her watching a movie of the actual Sharon Tate. And those those scenes are lovely. Don't get me wrong. It's it's like an artist enjoying their craft while not like you know in anonymity to a point and really breathing in the fact that like they're making people laugh or feel or you know something. Um, But it definitely doesn't feel like um, really part of the rest of the story. uh, If that is an important aspect to you, if you need. If I mean, and granted, it's funny. At first, I was like, oh man, like Tarantino doesn't normally do this stuff. It's like, yeah, he fucking does. Dummy me. Like, Pulp Fiction is entirely <laughs> disparate storylines that, granted, I think are weaved together better, mm-hmm. but they are d- disparate stories. Um, I don't know. It's it's a hard. I go back to a hard nut to crack. I'm talking like a Brazil nut. Brazil nuts are delicious, but also the hardest to get out of the shell in one piece. <laughs> and I think this movie is a Brazil nut.
1: Wow, a Brazil nut of a movie. Um, I'm not sure. Is that on a scale? Is that on a star scale? Where does the Brazil nut land? <laughs> I, I
0: can give you the nut scale. Okay. I mean, like, uh, Is it like a cashew. Uh, well, a peanut's super easy to open. Right. Uh, followed probably. Yeah, what's, your,
1: what's your favorite nut to eat? Like.
0: Oh, like, oh! Uh, I thought we were talking, but nut to crack would be the analogy. I, no, no. But
1: like, once oh, you, you just crack- want you literally just want to know my snacking habits. Yeah, well, I'm just saying, like, uh, on a I mean, scale almonds, of nuts, 100%, but... almonds 100 percent. Almonds are your th- and how far? But what's the worst nut? Oh, the worst nut! Is it walnut? Walnut has that sort of metallic aftertaste. I kind of dig the walnut metallic
0: aftertaste. Yeah. I would say a chestnut is probably my least favorite. Okay, so nut. between
1: chestnut and almond, where does the Brazil nut sit?
0: Oh, Brazil nuts high. Brazil, Brazil nuts oh, delicious. It's closer to the almond. Yeah, but but <laughs> but but if if we're going for deliciousness to, and I'm specifically, I want everyone to know this very clearly. I'm no longer talking about the film. I'm just talking <laughs> about nuts. Yeah. a Brazil nut is so much harder to crack than an almond is. Yeah, that the the amount of effort you have to put into a Brazil nut versus how much you have to put in for an almond isn't quite enough to make the difference of flavor. So almond all the time, but Brazil nuts if On you can, if you can get that cra- if you can get one cracked perfect and I I'm one of those people <laughs> <laughs> Let's just talk about nuts. Where if I crack the Brazil nut in half and then I have to like pry it out with like one of those like nut pointer things, I get really I get really frustrated and I don't enjoy the nut as much. Okay, <laughs> so
1: many ways this could be taken in the wrong. context. I just want to keep saying nut, <laughs> yeah, I know, uh, like to see where what you nuts did in the wrong context. Um, so I will say this: I certainly like you enjoyed the experience of watching this film. I enjoyed the camaraderie between um, Rick Dalton and his his stuntman, Cliff. I think Cliff comes out, despite being kind of a problematic character... He's super problematic. ...comes out as being, like, one of the coolest on-screen presences... Yes. ...on-screen in recent... In memory, and it reminds you of, like, what Brad Pitt can bring to a role just (laughs) by simply... Just being himself. Yeah, just being himself. He's got this sort of, like... Uh, and it's and I guess it's strange because basically Leonardo DiCaprio is tasked with playing like nervous and insecure against Cliff, who's like focused, uh, calming, plus a great cheerleader, plus just like a cool guy to hang out with.
0: I mean, uh, despite he's... his problematic backstory, which we will get into, mm-hmm. uh, he's like literally the best friend you want around. He's my Anthony in the theater right. when I was dealing with this stuff. Right, right, he's right. He's your
1: fixer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and and so he's. He's got this, like... You know, like, I just loved seeing see how he dealt with scenarios, uh, particularly this is a scenario later on in the film uh, involving... Um, I guess, I guess semi spoiler but involving the spawn ranch, uh, which anyone who knows the Manson family yep, story, their we'll home base, uh, will will know what that means. Um, but yes, there, I I completely agree with you, and I think the issue for me is is that essentially the film is a love letter to Los Angeles, Hollywood, around that period. But it's it's threading through two different stories. One is the story of the changing. Um, the changing face of Hollywood around that period. So uh, Tarantino is very invested in this idea of actors who basically aren't suited to what the 70s are going to bring. And, you know, uh, Rick Dalton in this film is this actor who basically uh, is trying to make that transition from TV to film and is not able to do it. You know, and has to take this sort of in his mind Compromised deal Of uh, Of going to uh, Going to Italy To shoot You know Spaghetti Westerns um, right. You know Which pre, you know, In the period of Clint Eastwood Was still kind of seen It's like a, an NBA player Going to Europe To play basketball For a while You know what I mean um, <laughs> And But then Threaded through this Is the You know And obviously Rick Dalton Is a fictionalized character And Cliff Is a fictionalized character Based some part And you know I think uh, Burt Reynolds Was originally Going to be cast In some part In this film And so but Based on some part Of the relationship between Burt Reynolds and his stunt double you know this there, you could pour days weeks months you know endlessly finding every reference in this movie if you're a person who loves to to dive deep into the references that Tarantino will throw at you in a movie you will be delighted with There's, how much yeah. this film throws at you every movie poster on the wall every song that's referenced every you know like almost every other shot feels like it comes from another movie and Tarantino is one of those people that has the ability to do that while still making the thing that he's making transcendent beyond just being a pastiche of other people's films he's it's just a it's a rare talent it's what he's incredible at and and it can never be denied that he makes unique films that draw so heavily on other people's work and that makes him a pop artist of the highest caliber. Yeah. Um but coming back to the the narrative threads of this film, there's this narrative thread about uh, an actor who's like moving out of that that space and it's threaded through this narrative of the the Sharon Tate murders which we all know and understand. And ultimately, um, I I think I have to get into spoilers to really fully explain Yeah, we're explain. about halfway through. No, us. but to fully explain what I'm going to say. Of course. But so but spoilers. I, I will say this. I don't think that those two threads kind of came together in a meaningful way for me watching this movie. And I think I think the issue that I had there was that I was curious as to why Tarantino had chosen the Rick Dalton and Cliff story to ultimately thread through the Sharon Tate murders. And I didn't I, this film does something similar to that what we've seen in his in in his work with the Inglorious Bastards, for example, which is you know doing a kind of revisionist history, uh, which you know we, we will spoil a little bit later on. But I didn't understand why this particular why the car- why the story of a fading Hollywood actor was necessary to kind of reclaim the the Tate Murders. I there you can explain it with a sort of sense that they're both actors, one is on the rise, one is on the out. There's this sort of sense of innocence lost. Yada yada yada, but it still doesn't ultimately kind of give you that clarity of vision that I think I needed to walk away understanding essentially what this film was getting at. And that is, uh, this is the first time I think in any Tarantino film for me where I couldn't get a sense of what the film was getting at.
0: I have a hot take.
1: Okay, hot take.
0: And it's going to involve spoilers. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're in spoilers now. Yeah. Um, this is what I thought after sort of sitting with it for a minute. Because I, too, when I walked out, I was like, I have no idea if this is saying anything. Mm. All this is, is a love letter to a possible alternate future for Hollywood. And so, so. The, I don't know if it, the, getting to the end is not entirely successful in my opinion, but the ending is something that I, you know, uh, Tarantino has dabbled in uh, revisionist history in the past, uh, Django and Glorious Bastards, etc. Yeah. Um And this is like the culmination of that. I think what he's trying to say is if these murders didn't happen if an up-and-coming Hollywood starlet married to a prominent director being Roman Polanski, which we we don't need to get into at this point, um, w- was not brutally slain along with other people. If, if aging, action-y, tough guy men were able to transition beyond their normalcy and maneuver into the new age of cinema, and perhaps you know if if all that were to happen, then the Golden age would have continued longer mm. because the end of the film, and I guess i 'm just going to go right into the end of the film because the only part that actually reads that to me is the very, very end, right rather than the Manson family going and attacking Sharon mm. Tate in her house. Mm they get distracted by Rick Dalton uh <laughs> telling them off in the in the in the driveway when they're waiting to go up there and they attack his house <laughs> to find uh Cliff instead and Cliff and Rick dispatch them in terribly brutal ways. Yeah. Um and then after Rick, you know, uh after Cliff goes to the hospital, Rick uh sees uh Sharon's ex at the gate and they talk for a bit and then Sharon invites Rick up and there's an over the the uh, bird's eye shot of them all talking in Sharon's driveway and they invite him in. And this is sort of Rick's sort of like culmination of like wanting to be accepted by young Hollywood mm. and Sharon's still okay. And like it's, and he just had, he came off the, the a successful sort of uh transcendent performance that he did on a different type of thing. So the, all of that coming together is sort of I think it's just a wish of Tarantino, or not even maybe it's not even a wish, but like it's a, oh my god, could you imagine if this is how it went?
1: If yeah, yeah, th- that's what I think I, it is. No, I know I, that's that's exactly what it is. But if that is what it is, <laughs> it's unusual that that Rick and Cliff's story takes up so much screen time in the film because ultimately, like, it's a... Wh- what this film does is reclaim the Manson murders, you know, like, um... I, I remember th- there's a, um... Uh, it- 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 uh, Charles Manson was famously obsessed with uh, the Beatles' uh, uh, album, the White Album. Well, he's a failed musician. Yeah, he's a failed musician who uh, used to work with the producer of the Beach Boys, who was who lived at Roman Polanski's house originally, which go... is why he even goes there the you, first place. Yeah, you can go back. Uh, you, if you're if you're interested in this whole narrative, there's a there's a book called Helta Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi, uh, which is an excellent uh, retelling. Uh, Bugliosi was the prosecutor, I believe, at the time uh, on on the Manson family murders, and also uh, you, the you must remember this podcast. Has like a fifteen-hour deep dive into the Manson, uh, into the Manson family murders and, and how it affected Hollywood. It's incredible, um, incredible listening. Um, I think though, ultimately, I I thought the most powerful thing that this film did was was reclaim a the Manson murders to be not what they ended up being. Yep. You know, the murder of Sharon Tate, um, the the sort of dit- the 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 uh, the spiralling out of Roman Polanski and, and and that sort of thing. And and ultimately reclaiming that, plus re inviting the audience to to see Sharon Tate as a performer. You know, like, basically, the scenes that we get of Sharon Tate are pretty are pretty light in terms of what Margot Robbie has to do. She basically, you know, travel, uh, goes to a movie theater in the movie. Dances to the Playboy the, Mansion. Dances to the Playboy Mansion, and then watches her movie, The Ricking Ball, I think it's called, yep. uh, with Dean Martin. And we get to see how delightful she was and how much, you know, like, that that sort of... Uh, uh potential that she had as a as a famous performer. You know, and she was by all by all accounts, you know, I I remember seeing uh, Tess of Duberville or Tess, the Roman Polanski film, which had her in it. Yeah. I believe she was in the Field of Vampire Kill as well, but someone may be maybe able to correct me on that if I'm wrong. Correct him. Um, That's what we need. Yeah. But 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 ultimately, you know, to me, that is the mo- the singular most powerful thing that this film does is 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 reclaim that story. But while I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the Rick and Cliff story and I, you know, like loved every scene that I saw of them, I could never reconcile those scenes with contributing to the reclamation of the Sharon Tate, the Manson murders. You know, like it seemed like a, the threads, it was almost as though there were two threads being weaved here and one thread was very differently uh, colored or weighted than the other. And they never quite came together. And I, and all the, qu- the question that I came away with is not, is, it's got nothing to do with Tarantino's ability. It's got nothing to do with, you know, like whether this is, um, a failed film or not, you know, like Tarantino is a master filmmaker. He is great at what he does. He's incredible at making scenes pop and feel lively and, 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 you know, like weaving in dialogue that is incredible. I think he, he does kind of, he almost pulls off his, you know, I, I think Tarantino, from my reading of interviews with him, he is a fan of David Fincher. And, and he pulls off his most Fincher-esque sequence in the span Ranch sequences we're talking about. You know, it is the sort of scene that is filled most with a sense of dread, uh, similar to, to a scene from Zodiac, for example. Um, but, but I can't reconcile... But basically, the way I, I thought about it is I really liked this movie, and I really liked where this movie ended. What I couldn't figure out is why the camera was pointed in this direction instead right. of another
0: direction. I, I have an idea about that, but again, it's just conjecture. Mm. Conjecture. Um, conjecture. 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 Um, conjecture. I conjecture? think that originally, when this was, well, we, oh, no, let me rephrase. What this feels like to me is that Tarantino had the idea of doing a reclamation, as you've put it, of the Sharon Tate murders. And in doing so, he was piecing together how that would go about. And he went to the history of the Manson family and realized that their home base was at this old ranch that used to be rented out as a as a studio for westerns. And realizing that the you know the old producer was sort of uh, seduced by money and women that that Charles Manson gave him, etc.
1: That story is is fascinating yeah I know, to, it's, I know. it's very complicated so so
0: that whole thing right and then he's probably like oh well I can weave in fake characters here very easily because because of the where like the, since the Manson family basically was living in a back lot yeah he can then weave in
1: but Rick has other than living next to Sharon Tate, which is a fiction. Which well, is then a, he a, added it, that. A, then they added but, that to but, make them sort of together. Yeah, but Rick's and Rick's, you know, like the focus of Rick's narrative has has very little to do with the weaving through. I mean, other than the sort of thematic sense that he is an actor who wants to get in with the Tates and Polanskis. It, it's very his his narrative has very little to do with Sharon Tate, even on a thematic level.
0: Exactly. Yeah. L- yeah. L- yeah. L- l- and I'm not saying this works yeah. well. I'm saying this is what I'm saying. I'm saying that. I think Tarantino fell in love with that, and then as he was developing these side characters, fell more in love with the side I characters, he, I, and he maneuvered what his story would be based around yeah. to be that, and then made sure that in the roundabout way, it got to the end points that I said. Yeah,
1: because I don't think Tarantino, you know know—there've been many films made about the Manson murders, um, uh, and I don't think Tarantino is the kind of filmmaker that would make a straight biopic about. You know, like the the Manson murders or anything like that. I don't, I don't think he's got, he's he's interested in that, and I think he's interested in more of this sort of playful examination of Hollywood in that period. But but there's something about Rick's story which is so out of sync with where this film ultimately ends up that when those two stories kind of collide together, you know, by the time Rick ends up with a flamethrower to one of the Manson girls, and then and then uh, you know walks over to to Sharon Tate's house. You're left wondering why we spent so much time with Rick early on in this film dealing with his own insecurity, which has ostensibly very little to do I wondered, with reclaiming the Sharon Tate. Murders. I
0: wondered that until
1: the very end scene with them all talking. I know, but even when they like, I understood what happened when it all came together, but it didn't feel like that was the. It didn't feel like that was satisfying, like in the way that when the The finale of Inglorious Bastards, when uh, when ultimately Hitler gets slaughtered, uh, and uh, I forget the character's name, but played by I believe it was Mel- oh. No, no, played, the actress played by Melanie Laurent. I forget, yeah. uh, I forget what her name is, but ultimately her plan is to kind of reclaim her hair, you know, like reclaim the loss that is taken from her, and ultimately she destroys Hitler and the Third Reich, and that you know that that reclamation of history kind of all makes sense, especially with the 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 Nazi hunters and you know like. Tarantino, uh, Brad Pitt's character in that. It all kind of makes sense in that world. It also makes sense in the in the Django Unchained world, where where Django basically gets to destroy Candyland, you know through fire, you know like fire is the re- the repeated motif in all these films. Like the, you know like right. the reclamation of history is through fire, and and in, and in, and in uh, you know beautifully in Glorious Bastards, which I think is the most successful of this revisionist history kind of trilogy, um, the reclamation of history is done through celluloid. You know it's done through the burning of celluloid, um, and, and I think it's to me. This is the first experience I've had of a Tarantino film where even if I didn't like it as much, like, for example, the Hateful Eight, which I had problems with, it's also the first time where I felt I was out of sync with the movie I and, I, and I couldn't I couldn't reconcile the things that he was doing, even though he's doing them very well, you know, like it's Tarantino. So you know? the,
0: the interesting thing is these these moments, these revisionist history moments uh, in Inglorious Bastards and in Django. Uh, they all the re, you know the revisionist history happens and then the story ends. Uh, it, it feels complete. It feels like the re, here's the revisionist history that here and, though as well. And they, well, I'm I'm getting there. Yeah. Um. Here, more so in my opinion than either of those two films. Not that I want to see this continue because it's a long movie and I yeah. enjoyed the time, but it, it wrapped up where it should wrap up. Uh it gives me the feeling that this, because this is sort of like a love letter or sort of a wish or a what if, if, you know, Hollywood sort of continued that way, both if if the Tates, if the Sharon Tate lived and also if uh, old actors were able to sort of transition and still be sort of a beloved part of the machine, this feels like a jumping off point of an alternate reality. Right. And the others don't. The others feel like the story's over. This yeah. feels like, oh, they're... There's more to this, or, or, or not that there's more to this specific story, but now we're like, you're left with that, oh my gosh, even more than, oh my God, even more than like, what if Hitler was killed with fire in a cinema? Mm. Like, here, it, I'm, I'm it, left with more, like, mm-hmm. it expands a universe that does not exist. Yeah,
1: and I guess you could, you could, you could make the argument that if you were looking at this story, the, the Tate murder, well, or you know, the, 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 the alternative history to the Tate murder, could be the beginning of the film. You know, like, it could be the point at which the beginning yep. of the film is, and then it becomes about Rick and, Sharon. you know, Rick entering Sharon's life and then, you know, seeing with an alternative, uh, Whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but, but there's something about... And, like, I also... Like, I was very struck by the structure of this film, which is, you know, it's ba- essentially two halves, uh, each six months apart, but both one individual day. And I was just left struggling with what was so important about this first day. You know, so we see, basically, Rick... Uh, ultimately, kind of failing, then succeeding at, at, at you know uh, on his day on uh, what was the call the Lan- uh, uh, Bl- Lancer yeah the Lancer uh, TV which is show. a real show yeah with uh, Timothy Oliphant playing the the Lancer character and you know I I, I think uh, 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 DiCaprio is 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 wonderful in this in this sequence he's he's so good at playing both the insecure actor and also you know demonstrating his ability to like. Uh, channel, almost Cliff's performance into it. And I, I thought he was just incredible in this thing. And, you know, that scene where he basically fails and goes back to his his um, his trailer, and he, like, he basically gives Freaks himself out. an ultimatum in the mirror that he's going to, you know, put a bullet in his head. And you believe him absolutely, 100%. But I was just curious, like, what was it about that particular day that we needed to see that... That lit up, you know. Like other than also, you know, other than basically saying, okay, so from this point, Rick went off to to Italy and then came back, and I'll, Sharon got pregnant. I'll or tell Sharon you. was pregnant. at this I'll time. tell you, <laughs> yeah.
0: it was Julia Butters. Julia Butters is so good. Holy fuck! Yeah. Uh, that the scene where they are sitting and reading and talking and chatting, and even the end when like that's the best acting I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh <laughs> so fucking good. Yeah. Uh, that's not the reason, but that. that but, I'm but, glad but you that know, but Ca- but
1: DiCaprio in that scene, you know, like he's... Well, you know what? He's entirely... Yeah, no, and it it is playing into this idea... You know, like, there's a line that DiCaprio has in that, which is that, you know, like, uh, she says something along the lines, cheer up, it'll get bitter, and, you know, like, uh, you're doing... Uh, it, I, I can understand why you're reading this book. You know, they're talking about the Bucking Broncos yeah. book, and he says, in 15 years, you'll be living it. Um, you know, which I just thought was like a real telling sign of like this this sort of insecurity that he has about his career. It, 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 and it sort back. of makes thematic sense, this goes but it back. doesn't make
0: narrative sense. You it know, make, like... Well, I mean, here's the truth of it. I mean, it makes enough narrative mm-hmm. sense. It does get you through the points that you would get to to get to the end of the story. Like, it does do that. It just does it in an incredibly extended out way. And again, I go back mm-hmm. to the term indulgent. Yeah. This film is indulgent in every possible way through its music or its set pieces or its its scenes. Mm-hmm. There's a one-shot scene where Brad Pitt fights um, uh, Mike Moe as Bruce Lee, <laughs> yeah. and... It's literally a throwaway thing about the history of Cliff that has nothing to do with anything that goes on for about 15 minutes as a flashback. You know, and, and, and you're like, and I get that it sort of ties into because Bruce Lee did train Sharon Tate yeah. for that wrecking ball movie. Yeah. yeah. But like, I think that's something where Tarantino's like, Oh my God, I can't believe Bruce Lee trained Sharon Tate. We could link all this together. Let's do a side thing with Bruce Lee. That's what I mean by indulgent. And, and, I think I'm going to even go a step further. I think this film in its indulgence is making a commentary on the golden age of cinema because the golden age of cinema in itself is indulgent. Yeah. And and therefore the statement that is being made with this film is going. I, I It's funny. It goes off the rails a lot. Yeah. It, but 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 it. It's, that's the, I think the feeling of the time of just like, everything's cool. Let's, oh, is this interesting? Let's hang out here for a second. Yeah. And then coming back. Now, narratively, going back just real quick, and I'll, I'll wrap up that. A hundred percent, you could have a much tighter narrative with probably a more uh, emotional ending and throughput for an average viewer. I mean, movies do it all the time better than this movie did, but I don't think that's what this movie's about. I think this movie's about, honestly, weirdly enjoying the ride and giving a love letter to a timeline that never could be.
1: Yeah. And, and I, you know, again, uh, th- I guess the other thing was, was, you know, the film is filled with a sense of dread about Sharon Tate, because if you know anything about the Manson murders, you know exactly where this is going. And like, so I, I knew as I was watching it that, you know, like this first day that we were seeing was not the day of the murder because she wasn't pregnant, yep. which is this fact that I have... Maintained in my head ever since I read Helter Skelter uh, back in the day. Oh, this is where we're going to come to with Helter Skelter, by the way. Um, so uh, Manson was famously um, obsessed with the Beatles' The White Album, which had Helter Skelter on it. Yep. And uh, U2 when they did their album Rattle and Hum, I think it was. I think it was Rattle and Hum. They did a, a, a reimagination of Helter Skelter, a, a live reimagination of Helter Skelter, and they and they said at the at the very beginning of that of that performance is that. Um, uh, Marilyn Manson stole this song from the Beatles and re- and, and turned it into you mean something. Charles Manson, uh, Ch- Charles Manson, not Marilyn Manson. Charles Manson uh, stole this song from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. Um, and I think that's kind of the act that this film is doing, which is that mm. Sharon Tate, you know, Sharon Tate was stolen from us. We're stealing, you know, Tarantino's giving her back to us. Um, and I, I, I love that idea, but I, I can't help but wondering, like,
0: You're going all Carrie Bradshaw on me right now.
1: Yeah, I can't help but wondering why why Rick is so important to the story because Rick becomes the hero of this film Rick represents he, Old Hollywood he does and he represents Old Hollywood in a way that doesn't connect with Sharon Tate's murder
0: but but it he, does connect with the loss that old Hollywood ultimately felt once this happened this is seen as a fulcrum point this is seen as a change like and
1: if like here, here, here's a here's a thing that I thought would have been interesting because we're doing so much fictionalization in this film yeah. for example there's a there's a there's an almost silent moment that happens where Sharon Tate picks up a hitchhiker and takes her to her job. And I was like, I wonder what this film would be like. You know what I mean? If if it was literally about the hitchhiker and Sharon Tate.
0: Well, the thing <laughs> the thing is there's lots of moments like that where it, 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 there's there's a tons of things that all the characters get into in this film yeah. that you just have a sense of dread like oh fuck this is going to go wrong this yeah. is going to spin because you do know the story like yeah, you yeah. know that what are the aspects of the story and i think that, that the <laughs> continual playing against that is a really good cuz you still
1: feel the stress of it the thing the thing was by the time we get to the end and i and we realize that you know you you have to you as you're watching this, your brain is trying to weave together these two stories. Like, how are Cliff, how is Cliff and Rick gonna interact with the the Manson murders? You know, yep. and we know that uh he's he's interacted with them with Spawn Rush people. But but when it happened, I was like, oh, we're doing the Inglorious Bastards thing again. And that's and I and I was actually put off by that. You know, like I I was I was I was kind of taken aback in terms of like Oh yeah, it's that thing that he did in that in the previous movie, and yet in this one it feels entirely the the just the phrase I kept thinking about in my head was the camera was pointed in the wrong direction. Here's what I'd or say, or pointed in a direction I couldn't quite.
0: Reconcile. I think the revisionist history and in inglorious bastards is played better and more thematically correct with the film it's in. I think this does suffer a bit from the hateful eight hate syndrome of just turning violence into what you're trying to make uncomfortably
1: funny. Yeah, it's, and, a, it's a weird. There's, there's so, a weird tension in this in, in the violence in this at the end of this film. So
0: when the when the Manson family people come and try to murder people, uh, mm-hmm. they're met with Cliff and Cliff. And 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 uh, uh, and uh, the Italian wife, yeah, uh, and the dog, mm-hmm. Uh Brandy, just, I believe. Yeah, it's funny. I know the, I know the dog's name, but not the wife's just name. Just destroy <laughs> them in a incredibly easy and brutal fashion.
1: I don't know if easy is the word but there's there's an in- It's
0: pretty easy and the only time that uh, Cliff ever gets hurt is by accident when a person falls and shoots a gun. Like it he stabs him. Yeah, oh, mm. uh no no there's the stab in the leg and then he gets shot when he falls down. Did he get shot? Yeah. I don't think he got yeah, shot.
1: Uh, write us in it, only movie podcast at gmail.com. Sure. I don't believe But you either way,
0: it, it, he they get dispatched very easy. And that's part of the power fantasy of taking this horrible act back. But and then mm-hmm. and then the woman who literally gets mauled by a dog yeah. comes out, falls in the pool. And gets uh, Rick br- freaks out and then he comes back with his old flamethrower from his old like Nazi
1: killing movie and just roasts her. And you get that there's an uncomfortable thing that happened in my theater when that when that happens, was people start cheering. And I get it, I understand because the Mansons are kind of like Hitler's in this case, which is the there is a level at which society is accepting of their they're um of damaging them. Of damaging them. Like it's understandable. But 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 it's coupled with the story that Cliff has of killing his wife because she kind of argued with him. And it it it, it there's a That's weird. Yeah, it, it is a very you know, and it, it's it's the same level of uncomfortableness that I had at the end of the Hateful Eight, where you're just like, hmm, because Tarantino's really good at female characters, Tarantino's really good at writing women, Tarantino's really good at like playing all that. But these last two films have made me question that. A little
0: bit, and there's also like, for instance, I didn't have a problem particularly with the way that the man was dispatched in this film, mm. or the woman who eventually gets fried. Yeah, I had a problem with the way that the other woman uh, was one dispatched, who's bashed in the face, <laughs> who was literally her her skull was crushed in mm. due to multiple blows across multiple hard surfaces, and to the point where it kept. Happening long after she was dead. So, so here, here's the thing about. Oh, sorry.
1: I, I was I, that was the part where I was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" It's it's an interesting thing that we get into this conversation about violence in cinema which is that that you know for example there's a there's a moment before this where the where the Manson family are kind of discussing how they're going to do the murder and and one of them says uh, I think it's the the one of the younger girls says something along the lines of I've got this idea let's kill the people let's murder the people that the that, that, th- that taught us to murder and and kind of through th- the medium yeah, yeah through the medium so there's this interesting sort of I guess, somewhat level of commentary to it, but then you get this kind of indulgence with the violence, and and it is it is this catharsis of violence that happens at the end of the film, which, you know, in the case of Hitler being burnt alive, we're kind of invited in on the fantasy of it all, and I don't know if the fantasy of killing the Manson family, it, it, it feels like that should be okay, but there's something about seeing it. Well, it goes
0: that, it goes too far because there's a point, like, Okay, this is how I'll sort of break down. Because,
1: But then why are we okay with the guy being brutally because mauled? Because here's the deal.
0: The guy was brutally mauled and murdered, but was still fighting back throughout it until he was dead. The, the There is
1: something visceral about seeing a man beat up a woman that is and, difficult to and watch. And also... Even if the woman is I know, but, you know, but like there's historically also, the perpetrator of one of the worst mooders in and this is, Hollywood this, history. This is
0: what I'm saying. <laughs> If you are fighting against the man or a woman, I'm just saying, like in in a cinematic situation, if characters are fighting to the death, when a character is dead or beaten, when the good guy the good, good guy quotes yeah. beats that person, it's done. They might be dead. There might have been brutal violence to get there, but it's dead. <laughs> even even for the most part, I'll even go back to Deadpool, which I think was still excessive, but for different reasons. When Deadpool kills someone, then they're dead. Here. When 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 Cliff kills that one woman, he goes beyond killing her. He goes to a, a brutalizing her corpse place. And that is something that, at least for me, and everyone has their own thresholds to violence. But that's something where I was like, from a filmmaking perspective... Why? You could have had, I I shit you not, you could have had one headshot to that fireplace mantle and called it done and been like, that would have been brutal. It would have been effective and a murderer would have died. And then, but, but instead we get this beyond that. Not even rage because he's drugged. Yeah, and so like it's it's like a calm, ki- like uh uh uh, what's the word? It's not it's not even murder or killing. It's a it's a um uh uh uh. How do you, what's the word when you destroy something entirely after it's uh, desecrated? Yeah. Uh, of a corpse. Yeah,
1: and that's what got me. It's it's weird though because I guess the film kind of gives us this uneasy tension between you know like could we have exactly that scene with hitler for example like do we in are, are we in, are we invited to indulge upon the 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 reclamation of someone who has done harm to others for me
0: yeah death is the end of that reclamation for characters in films or cinema or whatever like I don't think I would enjoy or get any catharsis out of watching Hitler's corpse be brutally just fucking ripped apart like I just after he's dead and like that suffering for him that I wish upon him is done like then because then once a this is just my own personal thing but once a person is dead and if you keep doing terrible shit to that Person's corpse, Mm -hmm. that is entirely your darkness coming out and not having anything to do. With the vengeance that you have taken upon that person.
1: You know what I'm we you know what I'm imagining when you say that is that scene in office space where they're beating up the, 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 of, <laughs> the and photocopier and they drag him away and then he comes back and he keeps going with the photocopier. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um I, I think this is inviting a, a sort of interesting conversation of how that works. But okay, so I agree I agree with the things that you say, and it invites this sort of uncomfortable tension that happens. And you know, people in my audience were cheering when the fi- flamethrower came out and what have you. But but ultimately what it kind of comes down to for me more so than that is a lack of cleanliness into uh, of the narrative now i i think films can be indulgent i think films can wander i think films can can go down different routes you know like um the way tarantino in one interview described this is like alfonso coron had roma this is his love letter to, to l.a but obviously right. those two things don't line up in the same way um because the the sort of narrative through threading that the the sort of narrative threading that Tarantino is doing in this film to connect these two stories feels like he's pulling you know he's pulling two curtains that are from different windows you know what I mean if you're threading two windows to get sure. through two curtains together or something like that and and it's the first experience I've had in a long time or you know like any time with Tarantino where I just didn't quite see it you know what I mean I didn't quite see it on first viewing and and. I'm always willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm always willing to give him a second shot. I'm always willing to go back to his work, no matter what. But this is the first time where the first viewing was one where I didn't quite feel it. Here's where there's an interesting thing. Other than thing. maybe Grindhouse. Yeah. <laughs> Other than his grind, you know, the, the driver. Here's a, Here's an interesting thing. Mm-hmm.
0: I just barely felt it. Right. So, like, I think we our opinions of how this movie worked, or if it did or it didn't work, are probably very close. If this was on a line graph, yeah. But that middle point, we're just both almost to the end of it. That's what it sounds like. We're both almost to that middle point of where it actually works or doesn't work. You're a little bit behind it. I'm a little bit in front of it, or vice versa. Because, which means, like, if this was a percentage scale, we're Mm -hmm. like five percent off.
1: Yeah, somewhere, something like that. I it's. Again, I was delighted with the way you know, I, I never was bored during this of film. Course. I never I never felt like scenes were going on too long. I, I enjoy like when Rick was performing in the line I was I, I could just if that was the movie, I could just watch that movie. Yeah. You know, when Sharon was going to the movies, I could just watch that movie. Uh the thing I enjoyed the most was Cliff going to spawn ranch i think that is you know like that that's an excellent scene and the dread in that scene you know like opening you know like going to find george who, who owns the ranch at the back and then realizing he's alive and what have you and uh, everything
0: they've said is true is
1: everything they've said is true but then coming back and seeing his tire you know like it's all great stuff and i love it but whether it all kind of comes together is a question mark i have about this film and not one that i felt satisfying enough to kind of rave about this movie or anything like that. You know, like, I kind of... I I didn't... I wasn't quite there and I was never in sync with where this movie was trying to connect with me.
0: This is what I'd say, though. I would say, if you like Tarantino, this is a good litmus test of exactly...
1: How much, much you like, like Tarantino? Tarantino. Uh, so go see it, like, <laughs> okay.
0: and 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 make sure you have enough time in your day, so you're not complaining behind other people in the <laughs> cinema about how long the film is. It's a long film, but I think it, because of its sort of listlessness and it's just sort of like getting through its stuff. I I think that's the correct timing of it. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I I Here, I'm glad a, I saw it. Yeah. I'm glad we talked about it. I, I'm so interested in hearing what you all think, OnlyMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know, because this is a film that, while I feel like, Shaheer, it just barely didn't get you, and for me, it just barely got me, I'm really interested to hear how it affected
1: other people. Yeah. I mean, for, just for example, one thing in this film where I was like, I don't know why this is in the movie or needs to be in the movie, is Al Pacino's scenes. You know what I mean? Like I was like, what, what, how does this kind of it doesn't, you know? Like it's it's It's, he got Al Pacino. Yeah, but like even Al Pacino's story of like, you know, I watched your films on film, and we see the film being. It is a nice. It's it's a
0: nice setup for who Rick is. Yeah, but you don't need Pacino for that. It's just Pacino was there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and you know, I, I, I'm very curious how this movie plays. It's getting very good reviews. People are kind of connecting with it. I'm I'm not one of those people, and it's weird because. I'm a I'm a fan of Tarantino but I guess maybe um maybe maybe it's a good sign that I can be uh critical of people whom I deeply admire. Yeah, I you think know? that's good. Yeah.
0: Anyway, this has been the only podcast about once upon a time in Hollywood. Shahir When you are not questioning your loyalty to one of your favorite directors, where can folks
1: find you? You can find me uh, backstabbing anybody and everybody on my website at www.shahirdow.com. That's S-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are 5% over the line of acceptance, uh, of the threshold of acceptance, where can people find you? You can find me uh, with loving and open
0: arms, man. Come on down to my website at matthwkroll.com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram. Or PSN and Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, check out my, uh, more of my voice if you haven't gotten enough of it on Extra Credits. We're doing some fun stuff over there, uh, teaching you how to play magic. We're, uh, almost through our Joan of Arc series, which has been really, really amazing. Uh, please go check that out. Uh, yeah, um, Next week, who knows what's coming up? We don't know. You don't know.
1: No one knows. Maybe we should just do an like entire retrospective for the rest of the year. We're just going to do every film reference from Once Upon a Time we're, in Hollywood. We're yeah, that's that's <laughs> all we'll do. Let's. Uh, that will take us out to the end of the year. That'll take us to episode three hundred. Surely, surely. But don't call, uh, don't call me Shirley.
0: Don't call me Shirley. Don't call me late for dinner. Uh You're Rick fucking Dalton.
1: Uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> It's late.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Again, OnlyMoviePodcast at gmail.com or OnlyMoviePod on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
1: And uh, we'll see you in New York.
0: What? <laughs> I mean if you if we run into you on the street. Should we do a meetup? I feel like we're getting close to doing a meetup. I mean we could do a meetup, but then again, like most of our listeners are not in New York.
1: Yeah. We'll just go to a bar by ourselves and pretend we know people.
0: Hey, everyone that doesn't know, Yeah, let's do that. Bye. Bye.
1: California Dreamers. all